Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Paul, the CTO at Edmentum, and we discuss important things to consider when bringing in an offshore engineering team, the role that culture plays when training the next generation of leaders, and tips for how to stay connected as an organization begins to grow. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I grew up in western Minnesota in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere called Underwood, which is a little farming town. So I grew, graduated with 29 kids in my high school class. And so it's a whole different world from there to here. But is it like a tech hub today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not so much. <laughs> Dude, that's crazy. 29 kids in your class. I thought I, I lived in a small town. I think there are maybe like three, three or 400 in, in our graduating class. Yeah, so it's uh, it's pretty small. So how did you fall in love with technology? Were you trying to automate stuff out on the farm, or? <laughs> well, basically, living on the farm, I knew at like a very early age that farming was not what I wanted to do. <laughs> it was definitely my family had done farming. My brother still farms. My dad loved it, but it was not for me. So I knew I had to do something different. Um, I kind of always loved technology from being a little kid and. Anytime I got the chance, we didn't actually have a computer in our house until I was a senior in high school, but anytime I got the chance to use a computer at school, my aunt had a computer, I'd go over there with my little programming magazines and hang out and, and type in programs and, and things. So I always loved it and just ended up just following that path. Well, how did it evolve? So you're typing up these programs from the magazines, you're messing around with it in high school, you finally get your own computer like at, in the house. In high school, like, did you go right into college and do this? Did you self-teach? Like, how did you continue your adventure? Yeah, I continued to just self-teach. And actually, when I went into college, I didn't, you know, maybe it was just being from a small town or maybe just me being naive. I didn't really think that there was, you know, that that was a career. I always just kind of thought it was something fun to do. And then um, right out of high school, I went to a, a community college that was close to where I grew up and was fortunate to have a the business teacher there who basically was like, what are you doing? Why are you not in computer science? That's clearly what you like doing. I was like, Oh, really? You can make some money doing that. And he's like, yeah, you can have a pretty good career. <laughs> like, Oh, I should do that then. So at that point, that's when I, you know, kind of officially transitioned to it and went to university and came out with a degree in computer science. And I guess the rest is history. Well, did, what was your first job? Was that H I saw you did some stuff like some .NET architecture at HP. Was that your, your first job or? Right out of college, actually, as my summer internship between my junior and senior year, I worked at an ad agency basically doing, you know, a lot of HTML, web programming at that point, a little bit of e-commerce. So I went to work for them right out of college for about a year. And then I went to a small consulting firm at the time it was called Rainier. It was focused purely on consulting for Microsoft technologies, a lot of consulting with Microsoft. So I went to Rainier. Um, did a lot of consulting there. They were eventually bought by Compaq, who was then eventually bought by HP. So kind of as part of that, that string, I ended up going from, you know, a pretty small company, which was Rainier, which was a kind of a boutique consulting firm up and being part of HP consulting, which was gigantic at the time. And then did you go right into like online learning education or how did you get involved with that? Yeah. So I went <clears throat> kind of there, there's a couple of similar cycles of stories. So after I got to, you know, 
HP, loved working in HP, loved working at the company, but it was just, it was a huge company, which wasn't really my jam. And so I decided I wanted to go back to working for a smaller company. So I went to one of my clients at the time, which was called Midwest Wireless. And they were a regional wireless, um, you know, cell phone carrier, early 2000s, super fun industry to be in, you know, just kind of an exploding industry at that time. So did a lot of really fun things there, really cool things there, was basically chief architect on the software side at Midwest Wireless. But then the similar story comes in, they were bought by Altel, who was then bought by Verizon. So I found myself, again, at a very large organization, went back into consulting for a couple of years. I went to Deloitte for a couple of years. And then at that time in 2009, uh, when I was at Deloitte, I got a call from a former coworker at Midwest Wireless, who was at a company called Plato Learning at the time, which is what Edmentum eventually evolved out of. But he he called and basically said like, hey, we're doing some really cool things here. We're moving. At that time, the big challenge we were moving was we were shipping out you know, CDs and computers and needed to move to software as a service and kind of bringing everything online. So I joined Edmentum, Plato Learning at that time, in 2009, uh, to kind of help through that transition as chief architect. And then in early 2012, moved into the CTO role. And so I've been hanging out ever since. Are you loving it? I love it. I mean, education and technology is such a fantastic industry to be part of. You know, like we already talked about, I've I've always loved technology. Like it's just, it's who I am and I'm a builder and, and a tinker and, and just love it. But to be able to do it, you know, I've always loved, I, I've been fortunate to love kind of every job I've ever had and, and everything I've done. But to do something in the education technology that is also has such a mission to it, um, you know, which has really become even more so the case over the last year with the pandemic and everything that's been happening there. It's just an incredibly fulfilling combination of, you know, what I'm passionate about and, and being a technologist and also passionate about giving back and having a mission behind what we do is just such a fantastic combination that it's it's great. What's the mission? I mean, our mission is we partner with K through 12 school districts across the country and help them, you know, achieve the student outcomes they're looking for. So that could be anything from helping them set up a virtual program uh, to offer students virtual programming. It can be providing them online curriculum, online courses, online assessments um, that they use as their core curriculum or to supplement specific programs. So we're we're all about delivering, you know, we are an education company and a technology company truly combined. So, you know, you kind of think of our business as the combination of a traditional software as a service company and, you know, essentially a publisher of education content smashed together. And, you know, we're using great technology to deliver great educational content um, and really partnering with school districts across the country. Who's making the content? Uh, our publishing team does. So I have a peer, our chief product officer, um, Cheryl's her name. So she, her team is basically, you know, full of instructional designers, former teachers, subject matter experts. So they're truly building, you know, if you think about it in terms of, I don't want to say that we're building digital textbooks, but if you think about it in terms of kind of traditional, you know, when we were in school, you get a textbook with all the curriculum, they're essentially doing the same process, but building it in an interactive online manner. So they're doing everything from building, you know, an, a high school algebra course to building, you know, fun games and practice for, you know, a third grader learning math or English or science as well. So it's a true kind of education publishing side of the business and the technology side, which is more of what my team does, obviously. So if you guys are doing this thing where you're helping K through 12 education, what was it like going through this pandemic? Because 
all of a sudden overnight, all of these schools had to go remote and you're sitting there with this tool set, this like mature tool set that helps, helps them do that. Did you just become like a, like a superhero? Yeah. I mean, it depends on how you look at it. Maybe a superhero to some or crazy to others, but you know, so it, it went through these, you know, kind of wild phases as we went through the year. So, you know, we started about this time last year, obviously as the pandemic set in being core to our mission, we just basically worked as hard as we could to give away everything we possibly could, right? School districts needed tools like right now. So we just geared up, did some crazy scaling and just gave away everything we could so that we, we put resources in the hands of our district partners. And some things were used extremely heavily. Some things weren't um, as districts kind of found their way through it. We saw, you know, so you saw kind of this initial spike and then districts kind of figured out what they were doing and, and usage went down a little bit. And then there was a huge spike for summer school as a lot of districts had kind of figured out how to do this. They knew they needed to give an opportunity for students to get caught up. So we saw a much higher than normal spike for summer school. Then things dropped off again. And there was really this extremely quiet time kind of all the way through the end of July as districts figured out, you know, what their back to school plan was going to be offering hybrid programs. There was a whole bunch of federal funding that got released in July. And then all of a sudden at the end of July, it was like crazy town like you've never seen before where we, you know, this this the lowest um, kind of increase we had on one of our platforms was doubling our highest ever usage. And some of our platforms are at like 75x usage. So it's just, you know, just huge demand um, for this, you know, not only for the technology, but also for our services. We have, you know, a service offering where we've been teaching virtually for, you know, well over a decade, having a, we have a whole team of teachers that, that partners with districts to teach um, different courses. And so, you know, we had to try to scale that. So we went into more of a mentoring mode to help districts, you know, teach and, and, um, implement programs to do virtual learning across their whole district with teachers who had never taught virtually before. Um, so it was, you know, everything from kind of the, the scaling we needed to do on the technology platform side, all the way to the, you know, using our services team to really help districts prepare for this huge unknown that they, they didn't have. What about your engineering team? <laughs> we had all kinds of, of craziness happen in that time. So basically, you know, we were, we were hosted in a traditional colo data center up through the end of July. And it was quite clear at the end of July that, you know, A, because just simply because of hardware shortages, we weren't going to be able to get what we need, but we were going to have to scale faster and bigger than, than we could possibly do in the data center. So we did an emergency migration over a two week period of our primary platform to AWS. So that was a, a quite the project to do in, in two weeks, but it went, went great. We had great support uh, from AWS as partner and the team put in just some crazy hours and crazy efforts to get it done, but kind of one of those heroic efforts. So we moved, moved to AWS. So we had that kind of ability to get a lot more elasticity with our scale and be able to do that. At the end of August, we have a partner that we were depending on for one of our offerings. It's called a student information system. It's not one of our core competencies, but we outsource it. Their platform couldn't keep up with the scale. So over a weekend, we had to migrate to a different you know, student information system as well. So kind of these big unplanned migration efforts that that did really well. So we kind of had those emergency things we had to put in place just to make sure that we could continue to serve our customers and, and did that really well. And then the other thing from an engineering team was just being able to pivot extremely quickly due to a whole new set of demands that were out there. So one of the biggest things that changed 
was the involvement of parents in their students' education. It just completely evolved how that was, right? And so our platforms um, certainly have some basic functionality that's meant to communicate with parents, but parents engaged at a completely different level this year. So being able to quickly pivot, get our teams working on building out additional functionality that could support parents, additional functionality that could support, you know, the fact that everybody was virtual all of the time, uh, different feature sets. So we definitely, you know, kind of quickly changed the, the roadmap and move the engineering teams onto features that could help, you know, with the pandemic and where we were at that time. So it was, you know, really from like April all the way through, you know, most of last year, it was just kind of moving around, you know, from place to place as fast as we could and just reacting as quickly as we could to, to get what we needed to in front of our, our partner base. That's amazing. And then I, the way that we got connected was through David at MentorMate, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with him and, I was like, who, who do you have as a customer or somebody that's like experiencing crazy growth? That is like really cool. And he's like, Oh, I know just the person. And then he uh, introduced us to our, to our teams and stuff. So I was, I was super excited, but how did mentor mate, like, what did you, do? I don't have, I don't get a lot of details, right? Yeah. I just, I just talked David, David's like, all right, this guy's cool. Talk with him. <laughs> what did you do? What did you do with mentor mate? Yeah, so MentorMate's been a partner of ours for about four years from an offshore development perspective. And so we, you know, the way we approach offshore development and why they've been a good partner for us is um, we don't do project-based development with our offshore team. We, we truly, you know, when we're developing and putting together a sprint team, we treat, you know, the MentorMate team members as a core member of that sprint team. So they go through just as rigorous of an interview process as a full-time team member would, you know, we, we, try to you know retain and and um and do the type of things we would with any full-time employee that we want that person to be fully invested in what we're doing in the business we have in serving our customers and caring about our students and teachers um so we've had a pretty unique relationship with them that you know as an offshore team member we have extremely low turnover we've had team members from MentorMate who have been with us you know for three or four years now and that's pretty consistent and so you know they just become part of the team and part of the way we operate. And so as our teams made these pivots, they were right along with us, right? And, and some of the biggest pieces that we depend on them for is that ability to scale up and scale. So like the platform I was talking about that increased 75 times year over year, right? We needed to throw some resources at that thing to, to you know, continue to help, not only help it technically help it scale, but also get some functionality in there um, very quick. So we depended on, my, on MentorMate to help bring resources uh, to add to that platform as well. And so we use them both for, you know, heavily for talent that's that's really at an equivalent level to our onshore talent, um, as well as that kind of very flexible opportunity to be able to scale as well from a development perspective. Yeah, because I was curious. So as a CTO, right, you have the ability to hire people directly. You have the ability to use the partner. How do you decision between the two? Yeah, it's always, you know, it's always a tough challenge to be able to do that, right? You want to have, there's definitely advantages to having full-time team members who are fully vested in the culture, fully vested in what you do. You're going to invest a lot of time and resources into building them up, but it's great to have the flexibility as well, right? Where you can scale up, scale back if you have to scale and change into different different skill sets, you know, as needs um, arise and, and go away. And so we've always tried to, you know, strike that balance. Um, we run approximately, I would say like two thirds onshore full-time, one third offshore uh, contractor kind of flexible resources. 
And that just gives us that really nice ability. One of the, one of the nice things because of the tenure that we have with our MentorMate team members, we can also depend on them to help us scale, right? They know the platforms as deep and as well as a lot of our onshore, you know, full-time team members. So if we need to add two or three people to a project, it always takes time. Like there's no kind of like flip the switch and all of a sudden you've got, you know, 25 developers that are fully up to speed and ready to roll. But it really helps to have that scalability as well, where we can depend on the partner to help scale up those teams and bring resources on and get up to speed as well. So just, it's all about for us, that flexibility, especially because, you know, as, as needs change, just like we saw, you know, it doesn't usually change that dramatically, but depending on what we're trying to do, where we're investing, we want that ability to, to, to you know, be able to shift resources and shift funding around to different areas. And it gives us a really nice level of flexibility to do that without having to, you know, severely impact, you know, the organization or the, the culture of the team. For somebody that's listening that I'm curious because I haven't done this at, at your scale. And so what's, what's like the important things to consider to do offshoring correctly? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times offshoring, you know, and I've done offshoring all sorts of different offshoring, many different countries, um, really for my whole career, a lot of times offshoring, you know, you can have successful projects for offshoring, but it gets really tough to be able to just completely say like, here's the requirements for a project, go build it and, and come back. You know, where I've seen much more success is if you can build, again, this sustainable relationship with the offshore team where you're treating them having the same level of, you know, expectations for an offshore team member as an onshore team member, right? Then you, you reduce kind of this friction that will oftentimes happen between the onshore and the offshore team, or, you know, there's, there's those pieces, if they're treating them truly as team members and peers, you just get much, much better results and a much, I think a much happier culture um, as well, which is obviously super critical in any engineering team. And I think the aspects that that do that is again, you know, bringing them into the process. So we do all of our standard agile framework um, practices, whether it's, you know, standups, retrospectives, those teams are always part of them, just like any other team member. It's, it's really important and well worth the investment to try to actually get face-to-face -face time with you know, those team members as well. So obviously with the pandemic, we can't do it, but we were fortunate enough. Uh, our last trip was, would have been in November of 2019 where we took you know, most of our leads, uh, myself and a few others went to Bulgaria and just you know, not only spent time you know, working, but spent time just hanging out. We did a barbecue at one of the guys' houses one night went on some hikes and just that making sure that that you get that true kind of human to human connection where it's not just somebody that you're sending emails or instant messages to or you know teams messages to that it's a real person on the other side and you just build that level of respect and rapport uh, between the team members that you wouldn't you know sometimes you otherwise don't get how do you how do you do a good job at teaching your people how to i mean you you're an organization that's large enough where you've got teams of teams of teams type deal. Yeah. How do you impart your experience and your knowledge onto these leaders so that they're, you know, replicating your behavior well, and so that this experience continues to grow as the company grows? Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, there's a couple of mechanisms we have that that we use that are pretty powerful, or uh, that I think are pretty powerful at least. You know, the first is we have our our set of team values, and you know, we talk about our technology team 
that there's really, you know, when you when you look at a technologist or an engineer or anyone in the organization, there's essentially two things they're being evaluated on. They're being evaluated on their technical capabilities and their technical competencies. Are they a great developer, a great systems engineer, a great DevOps engineer? And then they're also being evaluated on their adherence to our team culture and our momentum culture. And right, the the values are the way that we express what's important to us. And so our values are things like, you know, we own problems. We don't care whose organization that problem should live in. We're going to pick up the ball and we're going to own it. You know, we treat each other with respect. We always have the customer in mind. Our systems are always running, right? So we have these core values that we reference on a regular time. And, and you know, I, I like to put them into a two, two by two grid. And I don't remember the first place I saw this. It's not my work, but it was a really interesting two by two grid where you've got kind of on the X axis, you've got your technical skills and on the Y axis, you've got your values, right? And if you think about it, um, if someone's got great technical skills, but they don't have any adherence to the values, it doesn't matter how good of a technologist you are that, you know, you're not going to make it at our organization, right? When we have to end up managing people out or helping them find different opportunities, it's rarely because of the technical skills. Like we'll invest, train, build people's technical skills if we need to. It's really about, you know, will you be, will you uphold the values that our team or in our company is based on? And that tends more often than not to be, you know, what'll make or break somebody at Admentum. So it's it's really that kind of top-down true adherence all the way through our leadership of those values and then putting putting leaders at every level of our organization that, that truly believe and live in those values and, and move it forward. It's really clear when you can see the person and like interact with them. You're like, yep, that's the person, right? But as yeah. the company grows, you get farther from that and you have to teach that. I've been talking to a couple of people, seeing like different ways that they've solved this, mm -hmm. whether it's, it's how they craft their interview processes or whatever it may be. One thing I am asking around about is have you ever used any sort of like evaluation tools, like interview tools where you're understanding how the person thinks? Or have you ever used any of those types of tools? We do. So it's not, it's certainly not for every team member, but for a lot of leaders in the organization, we do use the, uh, the Hogan assessments. Um, if you've ever used those before. So they're basically behavioral assessments that give you some good visibility into, you know, potential strengths, uh, potential areas that might be flagged as um, zones you might want to watch out for from that person. And so there, it's certainly not something that we use as kind of a yes or no criteria for hiring, but it's very uh, insightful to get an understanding for the person you're bringing on and where they might fit into the culture, where they might not, how you can immediately start to coach and, and work with them or talk through um, those areas. So we, we've definitely started to use those type of tools more lately, especially on the leadership side, which is really good. We have we have a defined set of leadership competencies for expectations at Admentum. And so typically when we're going through an interview process, you know, we'll have different panels where you know, obviously we'll have a, a deep technology panel, we'll have kind of a technology leadership panel, but we'll partner with our, our talent organization, right? And they're gonna go super deep into those leadership competencies as well to ensure that they align from what we're looking for from that leadership perspective. So, you know, I'd say more, we use some formal tools and some less formal tools to, to try to get to the bottom of that. But there's there's no like super secret method that I'm aware of to have this 100% sure process when you're interviewing. <laughs> well, exactly. And with these assessments, what I have found from some of the ones I've looked at is it gives you an idea of how the person 
things that might help you with a little bit of understanding where they're coming from. So you can adjust your communication style based off of like their personality strengths. Um, but it's definitely not like binary, like, you know, yes or no, this person's going to be uh, yeah. a fit. Now I'm, I'm also wanting to know, so you, you do these interview processes, you have these panels, we're having this conversation about how you do it. There's a wide spectrum of companies listening from like single individual building their startup to enterprise with hundreds of thousands of people. I want you to provide some context to like your company size as much as you can share so that people sure. understand like you're experiencing this problem. This is kind of how you're solving them. But where are you guys at today? Yeah. So from a company size perspective, you know, just uh, in terms of, of who we serve, you know, we're serving about 8,000 school districts across the U.S. And so we'll have our platforms are supporting you know, millions of students a day, hundreds of thousands of concurrent students. So that kind of gives you an idea from a, you know, a, a scalability of the platform. So some pretty high concurrent needs from that perspective. From a size of the organization, um, we're well over a thousand employees now. We've been growing quite a bit, you know, especially with all the things that happened last year. And of that thousand, you know, our technology team is right around 120 of it. So we've got, you know, within our development team, the, the engineering teams are probably about two thirds of that. So that kind of gives you an idea from a scope perspective. So like you said, we've got teams of teams, but not, you know, this endless, you know, hundreds or thousands of developers, like you might see at kind of a, you know, a giant Silicon Valley company or something from that perspective. And are you growing mainly just through your own greenfield type projects? Are you growing through acquisition? How do you view your growth? Yeah, it's primarily all organic growth. So it's really just, you know, continuing to expand the reach of our current products, um, having more products being used by our district team members. We did do one uh, relatively small acquisition. Uh, it'll be two years ago in July, but that's the last acquisition we did. So we haven't been doing a lot of kind of inorganic uh, M&A type growth. What, what style of acquisition was it? Was it to hire the talent? Was it to get the customers? Was it to get the tech? Um, it was more to get the offering and the tech. So when you think about that, um, I guess the easiest way to look at it is our offering that we provide, you know, where we provide teachers to schools was primarily from a virtual perspective, grade six through 12, kind of your traditional, what you would think of junior high and high school students are the ones doing virtual learning. There is more and more of a demand for doing, you know, fully virtual or partially virtual learning at elementary. So we purchased um, a company called Calvert Learning and their specialty was elementary education. So for us, it was kind of a expansion of our market from junior high and senior high for that service all the way down so we could provide a K through 12, full K through 12 solution to our customers. So it was extending down from both a curriculum perspective, but also the technology platform that ran that as well. Next up is pre-K. My, my daughter has been using her tablet before she could form full sentences. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. No joke. There is a lot, a lot of pre-K as well. Um, there's some really cool tools and platforms and games and things that are out there. So yeah, it's, there's room to go up and room to go down from that. We typically centralize and focus on K-12, but. Do you have young kids? Do you have pre-K kids right now? I don't. I have a 15 year old, a 12 year old and a 10 year old, two boys and a girl. So. You got some users. You got some users at home. Oh, and yeah. On private oh, yeah. Beta they're, tester. They're, they're by far the most critical of our platform. So if I can get them happy, I can get anybody happy. That's for sure. Like it's no holds barred with them. Oh, I saw on here um, on the notes, they said to mention architecture, but 
uh, and like talk about like chief architecture, things like that. Is that an area that you spend a lot of time? Um, not as much anymore. That's, you know, that's definitely where my background is, was doing, you know, coming up as an engineer, doing more software architecture, the design of systems. But really at this point, you know, from a CTO perspective, and that's, you know, you see these huge varieties in how organizations define a CTO, right? From my perspective, the CTO role at Admentum is, you know, the highest level executive that reports to the CEO that's in charge of the technology organization. Some organizations, the CTO is like the, you know, best technologist, the person kind of laying the groundwork from an architecture perspective. Pretty sure my team uh, would not let me get too close to, to production code, that's for sure, in terms of writing anything and, and pushing it out. They might uh, push my hands away from the keyboard there. So, you know, from my perspective, I'd spend my day, you know, most of the time working through leadership. You know, I, I love working through the technology strategy. So a lot of it is, you know, especially recently has been really putting in place and evolving our three-year tech strategy of, of where we're going, how we're going to evolve, how we're continuing to grow and scale and, and, you know, keep the platform modern while we're also doing as much possible feature development and roadmap work as, as possible. So a lot of it is, you know, as an organization, when you're, you know, when you're a software organization and software is your business, it is a, you know, a constant kind of trade-off space that you're in of, you know, how do we continue to get things out to market you know, pushing features to our customers while also balancing, building those in the right way, evolving the architecture, you know, eliminating technical debt. You know, so I think it's every organization deals with that, obviously. But when when software is your business and software is the what brings in the revenue, it's it's sometimes even a trickier battle, I think, to to continue to play that game. So that's a a lot of the you know decision areas that that I play in there is trying to help find that balance working with my colleagues on the executive team on you know what we're going to deliver when we're going to deliver it and and how we continue to reach that balance that's aligned to both our company strategy and then the tech strategy of course that that feeds up into the the overall momentum strategy so when you're doing something like you know this recent acquisition or when something like covid happens and you're going to have to roll out these products i'm curious like when things are going from the concept of idea to execution and you guys are like playing with ideas and then deciding to execute them, uh, help me understand uh, how that works within the executive team. I'm going to take a guess at it. And I, I kind of, I'm, what I'm trying to do, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to reconcile my current experience of leading a company that has 15 people right mm-hmm. across sales, engineering, you know, production, things like that with how that's going to look at a higher level because I've played different roles at higher levels, but I've never been like the CEO founder at, you know, and stayed with the company. Usually I just build stuff and sell it off. Right. Yeah. And so what I find myself doing is like interacting with customers, interacting with our, you know, head of sales, interacting with our heads of production and kind of feeling it out, like what would be the next move for us. And then that kind of forms, you know, as we do our quarterly planning, we have a lot of ideas. We kind of figure out which ones are going to be bring the most value to our customers and also connect to our revenue. Cause that's the most important thing. Like what are the mm-hmm. least amount of hops to my revenue, you know, and how can I focus my time there? And then it just kind of comes together. One latches on, then we execute and then they deploy down within their teams. And then we just are meeting regularly talking about it. 
Yeah. And I don't know that, you know, that what we do is, is really a whole lot different from that. So we have, you know, a product management team that really is in charge of driving the overall roadmap that we're working on. You know, we kind of put a annual roadmap in place that's, that's at a higher level and, and rougher placeholders, right? We need the ability to be agile within that. But we start with that annual roadmap. And exactly like you said, that annual roadmap is tied to the annual revenue financial goals. So if we were going to you know, we have a product called ExactPath, and if we're going to grow that by X percent, what are the things that we have to do from a product perspective that are going to drive that? And right, and that that filters down to multiple organizations, right? So some of that will come into my organization and say, like, hey, we have to be able to support, you know, additional configurability around how we administer tests within that, right? So that'll be a feature that'll drive onto my team. But then we'll also have, we need to build, you know, maybe we're going to build out more reading curriculum for second grade. And so that'll fall into the educational part. And we also need to continue to prove for, you know, the efficacy of that product that it really works in education. That's a, that's a big thing for us, right? It's one of the things with education is we have a responsibility to teach those students that we're putting these products in front of. And so we have a research team that that's essentially their core responsibility is to say, hey, the, those features you built, the curriculum we're building is helping the students learn and get, you know, understand this third grade skill. And so some of that funding, you know, maybe may say, hey, we've got to do 15 research studies this year that are going to really prove out in 15 different states that this is having the effect we want it to. And so the, it'll kind of filter down, but exactly like you said, all those initiatives then rolling back up into that it matches our financial goals and matches our impact goals. We're owned, our primary investors are impact investors, impact growth investors, a, a firm called Vistria. And so, you know, they have expectations, not only for us in terms of how we're performing as a company financially, but one of the things that's great is having them as a financial partner is they also have expectations for the impact we're making uh, overall in terms of education outcomes for students. And so, you know, we have kind of a dual responsibility in terms of financial responsibility as well as, you know, education responsibility uh, they're working on as well. So that's a, that's a big part for us too, is not only mapping into revenue, but mapping into impact is equally important uh, as well. That's pretty rewarding working there then. Yeah, it's exciting. And that's, you know, like I said, the, the, for those of us that have been here for a long time and for those that tend to be successful, it's, it's, the ones that can connect to both, you know, the, the core technical skills, as well as the core mission of the organization. So I want to talk a little bit about leadership, right? Uh, I'm always interested because I get to talk to all these great people uh, like you and David and everyone. And I'm curious to know, like, what are you learning as a leader right now? Yeah. I think from my perspective, some of the things I'm really focused on as a leader is innovation and how you continue to foster innovation within your team. Our team has been, you know, through the way that we use agile, through the way that we do things, we're really good at continuous improvement. But in terms of uh, kind of truly groundbreaking innovation, how do you start to try to drive that into your team? How do you enable the team to do that, right? If you're a team that's traditionally executed, and like I said, kind of continuously improving, continuously improving, how do you give, give teams, leaders, the space to truly do innovative things, to empower them with the knowledge, the freedom that they need to do innovation. So that's certainly, you know, one area that I'm continuing to try to read up on, you know, build new skills, build new capabilities in is, is driving kind of this, this true innovative mindset, uh, both for myself and for the team. 
overall, which I think will be, you know, is really important for where we're at from an education perspective. Again, just with what everything that's changed, um, we're at a space where there's a true opportunity to do innovation as, you know, kind of the, the digital side of, of curriculum delivery really takes off. And so that's definitely one of the places where I'm focused right now. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I always like learning what's going on. And I, I always am curious too, like, do you get to like meet your new engineers and like talk with them? Uh, like, how do you, how do you stay connected to the entire org as it grows? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question because, you know, especially with it being completely virtual now. So I used to do quite a bit of traveling. We have offices in Minneapolis and Dallas, uh, as well as over in the UK, just north of London. So I would travel to those offices on a regular basis. But now, um, you know, when we'd started before the pandemic, but now we're completely remote and we're, we'll have offices, but no one's going to be required to go into those offices. And so it's really opened up kind of a, the need to do different things. So we do, you know, we do monthly department meetings where everybody comes together, we talk, that's not really a way to interact necessarily, but it's, it's more one way, but it's at least a way to get visibility. It's a way to hear questions and answers and those kind of things. And so that's part of it. But what I've, um, another thing that I've done recently that's been really effective is I've been doing virtual coffees and they're just these completely informal things where, you know, I'll grab a team and we just kind of sit down and hang out. I usually force them to play some, you know, uncomfortable, you know, <laughs> warm up game kind of thing. And then, you know, it just gets the, gets the conversation going and allows them the space, you know, where it's, it's probably 10 people or less at a time to just ask me questions or we just chat. And it's a great way to get to know people and just find out. I found out so many super interesting things about, you know, what people do in their spare time, what they're passionate about, their hobbies, um, and just really getting, you know, for me, what's, what's most important is really truly understanding kind of the pulse of what's on the mind of my organization, because a big part of what I have to do as the executive is, you know, I, I need to represent what we're doing as an organization down into my team, but it's equally as important that I can represent my team, to my peers, to the executives, to our investors. And it's important that my team has trust that I can do that, right? And so it is it is critically important to stay in touch. And so that's one way kind of in this new virtual world that I've been able to do that is just creating the space to have these, these check-ins with various teams. So, you know, I've met with our QA teams and engineering teams. I'm meeting with our DevOps team in the UK tomorrow morning. Um, to do one of these check-ins and they've been, they've been really fun, you know, and you get like, it's funny too, because, you know, each one of these groups has their own personalities and some are super quiet and some are extremely talkative and, you know, you, you can't always pick and choose correctly who you think is going to be, you know, what, and sometimes I had to do a lot of probing to get the conversation going and other times it's just free flowing and, and, you know, outgoing. So it's, it's a lot of fun to do that. Give me an example of one of the uh, the fun or awkward like warm up games. Like, what do you do? So one that I typically do is I'll you know I just have these like random questions like um, you know what was your favorite movie growing up or you know tell me one thing that you can't live without you know so there's these, just these questions that I picked up off of websites and things and then I'll take you know I basically take the set of questions they're numbered you know one to ten or how many ever people are in the session and then I've been accused of actually you know taking the team members and putting them to questions so I'll, I'll bring up do a screen share with like a random order generator with all the team names so they can see that it's truly being randomly generated and we assign it we go and and those questions have been so interesting right where you get 
like the, the one that's that's turned out to be one of my favorites is this like what is the one thing you can't live without you know the first couple times i did it it was something that you would expect like my cell phone but there's been some like super thoughtful around family around religious beliefs and things so all of a sudden that question has has gone from kind of one extreme to where it might be you know your phone or some other device or your car to some super deep thoughtful thing and that's where i think you just learn so much about people just by the you know even these silly questions that are meant to be warm-up questions you can actually get some pretty interesting responses that give you insight into people that you just maybe would have never otherwise gotten 100 but now you've got so much uh intrigue from me what is the one thing you can't live without yeah from my perspective <clears throat> that is a good question you know i've probably yeah, I, I don't think I've ever actually been assigned that one in one of the, because I participate too in these. Uh, I don't think I've ever been assigned that one, but I would probably go more on the gadget side of, uh, you know, phone or watch, but. Um, we won't tell your family. Yeah. But then I was going to say, I feel a little bit gu guilty and petty. <laughs> yeah, they're over, they're over in the other room there. They can't hear. So I, you know what? It's so it's, I get what you're saying because here's the interesting human part it comes down to the context of like the frame that your mind is in when you're asked the question, right? Because if I'm hungry, I'm probably going to be like water because we're like life forms and we, that's just the most technical thing. Like we definitely cannot live without water. We yeah. could go that we could go spiritual and go with like religion or some like spiritual answer. We can go, uh, you know, with the, the feel good, the warm heart, like my, my wife, my kids, like there's, yeah. there's a number of different ways to answer the question. And so, uh, it is. That's the fun part is when you're, you mentioned earlier, you like to understand what's on top of mind for your team and asking these questions, they would all have an answer for any one of the categories. You could say, what's your spiritual thing you can't live without? What's your health yeah. thing? You know, you could go down the list, but you're getting, you're tapping into what's on the top of their mind by asking this mm -hmm. interesting question. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, you know, it's something that kind of just organically came from, you know, my desire to just, I needed, knew I needed to stay in contact and connecting with the teams. And so it's just kind of over the last year organically evolved, but it's something I just really look forward to. And I, I love doing with the team. So it's, it's a good time. We'll officially agree as of today that for any CTO, VP of engineering tech leader, gadget and a type of gadget is an acceptable answer given it's our career. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think so. I think it's it's become official today that this is that, that is okay. Needed really for success in the career, right? Right. And at home because I need that little disclaimer for, for my wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man. All right. We dude, this is a great conversation. I want to make sure that we give you like a, a few minutes here. Was there anything that's on your heart or on your mind that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Um, you know, I think one of the things that that's on my mind is uh, that I think is just fascinating from a tech perspective, and I'm sure you've had, you know, uh, plenty of these into conversations, but just the role of AI and how it's becoming, you know, so real and so part of what's accessible for almost, you know, any software team out there, right? There's been a long time where you've, you know, it, it, it's always, you know, it's existed for a long time, but it's been the accessibility of, of building real applicable technology with AI and machine learning is just amazing. You know, what's available, whether it's through the cloud providers or others. And for me, that's one of the most exciting things 
that we're doing from an education perspective is how we're using AI to be able to understand how can we onboard teachers faster? How can we bring them up to speed? How can we recommend better, you know, if you think of recommendation engines, how can we recommend better curriculum to teachers to provide to their students? How can we recommend better things and, and even evolving it beyond there to, you know, I think that we'll get to a point where we'll never replace teachers. The best thing we can do is enable teachers with more information and that teacher to student connection is, is absolutely amazing. But I think there's going to be a time where we can depend on, you know, AI and machine learning to understand from a full perspective, um, the way that a student's learning and where they may need help that will provide just this fantastic information to a teacher that just doesn't exist today to be able to look at that in kind of the full context of their learning of their social emotional learning and so there's a lot of um, that's what gets me super excited about kind of this next evolution of where we're going from a tech perspective is just the the what you know felt like science fiction for so long is becoming very real and very applicable and it's not just you know a gadget or fun it's it's real i'm becoming more demanding too I saw a movie the other night. It was like a 2002 or 2003 movie called like like Paycheck or something with Ben Affleck and yeah, he I remember like, the movie. <laughs> yeah, you're doing some advanced technology, and I literally thought to myself, I said, "That was imagined like 2003. Why don't we have that yet?" Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's like, come on, yeah, Somebody come on, working on this thing. Oh man, dude, this is great. All right, so I'm gonna ask some tough questions. I have a new section on uh okay. at the end that we're trying out with you first time so oh, we'll perfect. see how I love it being goes. the guinea pig let's do it the title is called love on people that's the title of the section and okay. uh some of the notes in the section is i want to know like what drives you like what drives you like as a person yeah from my perspective what drives me as a person is just truly making an impact you know i um i just feel fortunate i live a great life. I've been blessed with a lot of things. And, and so what drives me as a person is how can I make an impact and how can I do great things? So that's what, you know, I love about being at Admentum and that connection to the mission. Um, I do a lot of volunteering outside of um, Admentum as well. I'm a scout leader. I love, you know, Boy Scouts was a, a big part of uh, my growing up that I loved. And so I've been a scout leader for over a decade and, and just love hanging out with youth and youth programs. Um, do a lot of volunteering for, you know, nonprofits and things as well. So for me, it's all about what motivates me is giving back and an impact and just building great things. I love to kind of do things that surprise and amaze people. And, and I think that's what's always kind of connected me to the, the engineering side of software as well. I love that. Dude, that's a great answer. I'm going to keep this section. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll share, like for me, uh, or one of the things that I thought of as you were answering that was, when I used, when I was less mature, when I was immature, uh, younger, I would hear people talk about um, volunteering and and for some reason, whether it was because I was negative or whatever it was, because I did used to be more of a negative person until then, like life wasn't great. So I was like, let's be positive. <laughs> Life's much better. But at that point in time, when I would hear people talk about that, I'd say, oh, they say that or they they do those actions because it sounds good to say later. Later in life, I end up volunteering and getting involved and start a charity, like do this stuff. And I realized that the reason why you do it is because it feels better than anything else. Like you can mm -hmm. definitely volunteer selfishly because once you do it, it's like, what is this feeling? What is this like? It's like selfish to be selfless, right? It just feels really, really, really good. And so when I when I hear you say that now, I guess I'm I'm kind of proud that like 
I don't know. I feel like you're really genuine. I'm like, I get it. I, he's pouring into these kids. He's helping them out, helping them grow. You know, you yeah. probably play a larger role in their experience than you know, because every once in a while, a teacher or someone in society has really impacted me and they didn't necessarily mean to, they were just being, you know, themselves. Right. So uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty great. So I love that you're doing that. If there's ever anything that I can help with, um, you know, shout outs on the show or, uh, maybe you're running like a donation drive or something and, you know, whatever you can think of, put me on your list for like the email list for like when you reach out and you're doing something and you want like contributions or help or anything. Cause, uh, I'm down, I'm in. That's awesome. I appreciate that. No. And I think it's, it's, you know, what's important is to find though, you know, it's one thing to volunteer, but to find things that to volunteer for that you're passionate about. And like you said, just kind of, you know, get you excited about doing it. You know, I think that's the the biggest thing for people is to just find what makes you feel good about giving back. And it's just, it's so rewarding and so enjoyable. Boom. Dude, we nailed yeah. it. I want to wrap up a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, I like to do calls to action, like to kind of help you guys grow as a business. You've got a good culture. I like you. How can people like learn more about your products? Maybe some CTOs of some districts are listening and, and they want to look into you more, look into the company more. What do they do? Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way for sure, I guess, is the the answer that you would think is go to Admentum.com. Um, you know, it's got a lot of great information about our products there, and and we'd love to connect with people. The other, for me, the kind of cooler part is, you know, one of the hashtags we often use is hashtag educator first. That's our, you know, it's, it's kind of our mantra um, that the coolest thing about educator first is that it wasn't some intentional thing. It's not our mission. It's not our vision. It's not the values. It just became this organic thing of who we are, and so if you're, you know, if you're looking for information on our products and, and want to understand how they can help your district or you know a student, definitely go to Edmentum.com. If you want to understand more what Edmentum is about, if maybe you're looking for a change, you know, there's a lot of um, 100% of our services team are, are former teachers or district administrators, right? Or if you're a technologist or a curriculum writer. Um, just go on any social and, and look for hashtag educator first. And that's what gives you kind of the best insight into you know, who Adventum is and who we are. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.